Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Today's lesson is Pathfinder 209, Pre-Maids versus Homebrew Campaigns. This is part of our 200 series all about jamming the game. These final three episodes of the 200 series really are meant to be listened together. This episode, GMing philosophies and storytelling tips all compose like a complete package. So I hope that after you listen to this episode, you go and give the other two a listen. And our special little incentive, our last episode of the 200 series, 211 Storytelling Tips, we'll be having Andrew as our guest again. Uh, Chris, you remember Andrew from our episode on... uh, You mean Andrew from our special party episode? Of course I remember Andrew. We also had him on our last episode of our 100 series, Character Creation. I I don't remember a lot after the party, honestly. (laughs) (coughs) So, folks, I'm sick, in case you haven't noticed. I'm not just a 30-year-old smoker who just now coughs and laughs like that. Uh, (laughs) A new development in Caleb's life. He just, you know, started laughing like that. It's a new development in my life. I just randomly started smoking for 30 years. I have discovered (laughs) time travel, and guess what, guys? It's amazing. Time travel powered by nicotine. That is the one downside. So today we'll be talking all about running either a homebrew campaign where you make up all the stuff on your own, or running a pre-made campaign where you take a product such as from Paizo, a pre-written adventure path, a pre-written adventure of some kind, and running that as opposed to making your own stuff. The positives and negatives to both sides of it. Definitely. And I think even more than the positive and negatives, we're just going to try to help you learn how to do it, how to run a pre-made versus trying to run a homebrew. Now, I'm a person who has done homebrew really my entire career. I've never run a pre-made before. Uh, with like a very small exception, the very first thing I ever did uh, was a starter edition of, of D&D. So aside from that, it's all been homebrew all the time and actually all occurring in one world. I have done a good mixture of both. I've done a lot of homebrew and I've also run a lot of, um, I've done the Rise of the Rune Lords adventure from Paisa, which is a full levels 1 to 20 adventure path, a really big campaign. I've done a whole lot of adventure modules, which are kind of like one-shot little self-contained stories that shouldn't take too long, although they usually end up taking quite a while. (laughs) So I'm going to start off right off the bat. Let's talk about how you make or run a good dungeon. In a homebrew setting, you've got to design the dungeon. You've got to sit there and be like, I have an empty piece of paper. I know it's like writing the essay where you just sit there and you spend 10 minutes and you're SpongeBob and you just make an intricate A because you just don't know what to do. Uh, so let me help you try to maybe kind of help you get a starting off point, you know, a jumping off point. Because sometimes once you get going, it's just like, oh, the create the creativity starts flowing. Uh, when you're going to make a dungeon, you got to think about the layout of it. Are you going to have it uh, linear, like, you know, they enter here at point A, and their goal is over here at point B, and they're going to try to make it through it, and I'm going to put these things in between, in their in their way. And, you know, and when you do that kind of thing, a linear, a linear dungeon, you have, like, little branches out, like little side rooms where there's different, you know, curiosities or different ways to get to the end of the dungeon. Maybe there's a lever in each room to get past the main, you know, door or something like that, of course. Uh, or just, you know, if you go into this room, you don't have to. But if you do, over here is, look, there's a, a chest. And if you kill the guy guarding it, you get special magic item. And then, you know, there's the, the multiple paths to the exit. This is, you know, you enter here and there is no, like, goal of I need to get to the, you know, the chest at the end and then, you know, that's it. Let me give you an example of uh, the multiple paths. Uh, actually, I normally do the, the linear layout. Most of the dungeons I've made have been very, very linear. But I have made a few that had the multiple paths. Uh, one was the very final dungeon of my year-long campaign. Uh, this one had... 
point A and they were trying to go to point B and there was just simply, you didn't go through the top path or the bottom path. There's a couple points where they connected so you can kind of, you know, go as you, as you wish. You didn't have to take the top path the whole way or the bottom path the whole way. But there's no reason you had to do 100% the whole temple. Matter of fact, doing that would have been uh, ill-advised because then you would have been wearing away your abilities, HP, yada, 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 doing stuff that was helping you gain no ground. You know, this was, it kind of felt bad because, you know, you make all these cool encounters and puzzles or whatever for the whole dungeon, and some of them my players just never saw, and you always kind of feel bad about that, but you always can take it and just put some of the stuff in your back pocket to use at a different dungeon at a later point if it was interesting enough. And another one I made, it was a Saren Ray's temple. I've mentioned a couple times my players had to hunt a couple gods, and they had to go to their temples to kill them. And in Saren Ray's temple, they uh, there was like these... The best way you could describe it is like the Lost Woods, you, you know, in Zelda, where you go in, it's a square area, and there's four archways, and you go through one, and it leads you to another area where there's four archways. It was kind of like that, and that would teleport you to another room. And so you just needed to get to a certain room, but there was multiple paths to get to it. There wasn't just one right path. And so once you found the path, they didn't have to go and see the rest of the dungeon. Now, the big difference when you're making your own kind of dungeon, your own area for your players to explore and make using one from a pre-made campaign is that just the fact that when you create your own things, and this is going to be a theme of the whole episode, when you create something yourself, you are more comfortable with editing things on the fly and you're just more likely to remember or you can just come up with something. Just for example, my players will often ask me questions that like, I'll have to look back up because I know that the book probably wrote it down somewhere, but I just don't remember it. Like Something as simple as how high is the ceiling? Like If you made your own map and such, you, you know. You know how high you intended it to be. You know what the artistic vision for the ceiling was, whereas when you're using right. someone else's material, you might not be as comfortable just making that up on the spot because it might come to play later and you might have to go back and retroactively say, well, the ceiling wasn't that high because then this wouldn't make any sense. Um, dungeons, actually, maps and such tend to be the hardest part of running pre-made campaigns. They're all given to you already. There's a map and then they go room by room and they'll be like, this room has this. It has these creatures in it, and it's filled with this, and there'll be will first be flavor text, and then it'll be like the actual description of the room. And the big problem, at least with a lot of the Paizo material I use, is that they tend to mix up, not mix up the information, but they spread it out. If they mention something in the flavor text, they often won't revisit it in the actual text of the room, so you have to kind of search around for certain information that might get lost. It is nice already having a map already made for you, so you don't have to go through all the trouble and all, it's already populated, the enemies are already there and given to you, but you have to do a lot of work and you gotta read it over and over again to make sure that you are comfortable enough to come up with stuff on the spot and when your players ask you kind of off the wall stuff, you know how to respond. Making dungeons is one of my favorite parts of doing a homebrew campaign. Sitting down on you know, a white square grid battle map and, and drawing a dungeon, it just I'm, it just excites me because I get to really exercise a lot of creativity. And when we're talking about creating or, or running a dungeon, you're not just talking about the layout. We're talking about like dungeons inherently have encounters, whether those encounters be puzzles and tricks and stuff like that, or just literally the encounters, the beasts in their ready to fight the party. As a, as a homebrew guy, I get to choose uh, what level my party starts at or give them a choice or whatever. I'm, I'm, it's not like Rise of the Rune Lords where if you're on this book, you're going to start at this level and it's designed to take you through this level. Homebrew, you choose that yourself. So I'm like, well, you know, if I, if I wanted to do a you know, high-level campaign or whatever, I'm doing this. I'm not, I'm not throwing goblins in the first dungeon. All right, they're going to get crushed. 
So, you know, I get to choose where they're going to be and what kind of the monsters I'm going to throw at them. But if you guys want to find out more about kind of like how to make the encounters interesting and stuff, listen to our episode 205, Making Good Encounters. We did a whole episode on how to do that and uh, talk about it in depth. But just be sure that you fill your dungeon with the appropriate monsters. If, uh, if there's not like quite the right thing available to what you were thinking about or fitting in the story you're at right now, skin. Skin, 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 skin. It's my one of my the best tools I have in my arsenal. The bestiaries that the, the Pathfinder gives us, I it's like the first thing I buy. If a new thing comes out, maybe I'm like, oh, I can't afford it. But if it's a bestiary, boom, I'm buying that book. I love the bestiaries. I love reading about the monsters, seeing the art. And the stat blocks are so cool and helpful. But they're not always um, exactly what I want them to look like. So you can just skin them. You change nothing about it except the way they look. So there's nothing has to be changed on the stats. And we talked about it in Making Good Encounters, how skinning was helpful in different uh, battles. But skinning is a big help uh, when you're not in running a pre-made where the monsters are in there and sure to fit into the encounter you want to have. And just for reference, in a pre-made campaign, like I mentioned, uh, in the book where they list all the rooms, they will list what monsters are in the room. And if it's a unique monster for that story, they will provide you with its stat block and its tactics that it's going to use if it gets into a fight with the players. And if it's a mundane, something from the bestiary, it will just give you the bestiary page that that monster appears on. And then you can just run them from there. And it will also give you their tactics that they'll use against the players should they get into a fight. So we got our dungeon. We got maybe how the, the dungeon map's going to look. We've decided what monsters are going to be in it. But now you've got to really populate it. Give it real life. Make it more than just pieces of paper and stat blocks. You, The best way that I've found to really get the creative juices flowing is to, is to figure out what your theme is or what your big mechanic of the dungeon is. What makes this dungeon interesting or different than others that you've run? Say um, the dungeon takes place in a crypt. Well, now, I bet right now, immediately you already things are coming to your mind. Okay, well, I'm going to have ghosts, which means the big problem with this dungeon is they need to have ghost touch because they're going to be fighting uh, ethereal creatures. So what can I do? Oh, you know what I can do is I can have maybe like in the second room of the dungeon, if they solve a puzzle, a special dagger, because I know we have a rogue in the group that has ghost touch or something like that or a powder that they can spread on their weapons and it'll give them you know 10 rounds of ghost touch or something like that all of a sudden you've popul- you've given yourself a, a room you've given yourself uh, a, a, need, a need for a puzzle so now you can come up with a puzzle you give themselves already a reward for the players and you've already created some beasts for, and you probably can do like the first two rooms of the dungeon already and now you can just continue to jump off what else uh, it's a crypt so I'm going to have skeletons uh, Why? whose crypt was this are they evil maybe yada 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 and that comes up there's like a creature that uh, is a worm that walks and it's supposed to be a, a, a lust for uh, a wizard with a lust for power died and he was just so magical and had so much lust for power and he was so evil that uh, his very essence uh, just kind of De- decomposed with his body and the worms that ate away his body kind of absorbed the essence and, and he reformed him that is like okay well this is going to fit now perfect into this dungeon that i've come up with uh say the dungeon is a vault or someone tried to protect a magical item well now you know you're going to design this dungeon in ways that a person who is making a vault would design it and there's going to absolutely there are going to be puzzles to try to keep looters away and different protections and wards and uh well are there going to be rewards heck yeah there's going to be ways to roll my play because they're in a vault there's got to be magical items in here and it's not just going to be a, a, a wand of cure light wounds because no one's going to build a whole vault to protect a cure light wounds wand right uh these kind of things once you get your theme and you make sure you're doing something different each time you're going to end up making some really cool dungeons that are interesting and unique that your players are really going to enjoy 
but then add things that are, are maybe a little mundane to the, the room. I always add uh, to my dungeon something like that, like um, in Trailblazers, uh, spoiler alert for that, for chapter three, when my players uh, raid the tomb of Obnixilus. One of the first rooms they come into, I, I described as there's a bunch of tables and there's some glassware and plateware on it, and they all seem to be just empty. And it just really didn't seem to be anything, and I didn't make a big deal of it, so my players weren't trying to, like, what's the mystery of this room? It ended up, it was just, I, I figured the workers who were building this giant crypt would have made a room for themselves, or there would have been a room for them to relax on downtime, eat, and stuff in between working when they had time off. And so that's why I put the room in there. It doesn't really do much. It just adds a little bit of character and a little bit of life and reality to your dungeon. So just add little things and like that. And, of course, statues and different things like that. Just, you know, decorations, of course. That's a really big point. And that's something that I think a lot of Paizo pre-made products do really well. It's not a dungeon presented simply for the characters to trot through. It's a real place where real people either live or once lived and it has a purpose. And they put a lot of stuff in there just to present that idea. I'm just going to read a quick little flavor text for a worship hall for a Temple of Razmir from one of the Paizo books, just to give an example. So my players would walk into this, and I would likely read this to them if they would ask for a description of the room, or I might just do it unprompted. Rows of polished black stone benches surround a vast staircase that ascends in the center of this grand worship chamber. The 31 white marble stairs, each carved with one of the tenants of Razmir, climb to the top of a pedestal that supports a gigantic golden mask, the symbol of the living god. As sunlight streams through the great stained glass window high on the eastern wall, it passes through the eye of the mask and reflects through a great emerald set in its forehead, bathing the room in shafts of green light. So a lot of that information isn't really pertinent to the players. They don't need to know that there's exactly 31 steps with the tenants of Razmir written onto it, but it's something that the temple goers, it's very important to them. Right. And, and like you said, the dungeons aren't just places invented for the players to go through. Like, I mean, of course, they are really, but I mean, in the world, <laughs> that's not what they are. So a temple of Razmir, like that exists for worship. So the things they find in there will be for that reason. You know, there's a lot of side rooms where either guards would sit there and they're off shifts. There's a lot of things like that. You know, there's secret rooms. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, isn't just pertinent for the players, but just stuff to use for people that are in the temple. Right. But you still want to make it so that the players never go to a dead end for no reason. Say, so yeah, when I'm, it was the first room the players entered when I talked about the, that temple. Uh, where there was those tables, and they just it was they had to go through it. I didn't make them, you know. There's a door left and a door right, and they go a left door, and then they find that room. No, because then it's like there's nothing in there. There's no reason to be there. The players going to try think naturally. They're going to think correctly that there must be some reason this room is here. We got to figure it out. Don't do that to them. <laughs> there should never be a room that has no reason that they have to go out of their way to get to. I think I disagree with that. Just I mean, if they actually had to like physically go there like solve puzzles to get there kind of thing like actually put a lot of work forward to get there i think there should be a payoff but if there i think a dead end can exist without there being something there well then i guess we'll have to agree to disagree <laughs> it's it's fine it's not gonna be a disaster i don't think let's talk about another i think uh, and I've, I've been just dying to talk about this for the longest time so i'm so happy to finally talk about it one of the templates that people want to do when they when they're making a dungeon is a maze and let me tell you guys Let's talk about this because it's you can you can go real wrong a real fast. I've tried mazes a multiple times and it took me absolutely forever to make a good maze that my players enjoyed and it wasn't just tedious and terrible. See, the problem is not having to uncover 
what the player's vision is. Because when you do that in a maze, you're doing just little down hallways and you're doing it for a million hallways because there's tight corners and this stuff. It's just like the worst. I don't have the patience for a million strips of paper like that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so, you know, the first, oh, let me tell you how I did it wrong. You know, Chris, I actually think you were there. It was uh, the final dungeon of my first season or, or second second season of the big campaign and it was uh they had to go through a maze and in this maze it was uh was like these invisible stalkers that would hunt you down in the maze and they would try to kill you and then there were stores and they were the doors were mimics there was only one real door and so you had to go through this maze and because i didn't want to cover up the whole maze i said uh here's what we'll do you can roll uh for however many entrances you go you roll a dice and then you know clockwise whatever number you get you go with that one so you can go left forward or right you roll a d3 you get a two you're gonna go you know forward terrible because you're taking choice at my player's hands but i couldn't think of a way because they could see the whole map it's like they'll just see where the exit is and just go through it like that terrible it was the worst idea players didn't have fun i felt really bad about it uh and i just kept going on and making more and more mistakes until i finally figured out how to make a good maze one is I, I blew it up expanded it didn't make it a million different turns it was it was narrower i think i talked about some good encounters when my my players uh fought iomen day in her uh, like chamber where they had a fighter uh, between her and the party across the whole map were these pillars and there was invisible walls of force in between these pillars. There was only like nine of them or maybe 12. Um, so they had to try to go through them and then if they tried to go through there was a wall there it stopped them and then you kind of like oh you map your own and every time they would come across a wall of force I would draw it on the map so it helped the whole players remember where it was and so in the end you end up kind of just like drawing the walls and they figure out okay this is where how to get there now and so it ended up working out really well my players really enjoyed it and it was I was just like vindicated I'm like finally I've made a good maze I've done it I've done it so if you're gonna if you're gonna make a maze make it a lot bigger make it something that your players they need to be able to some way see the whole map and not know how, how to get through the maze. That's the big thing you've got to accomplish. And uh, another way I did a maze was in, I was talking about Sarah Ray's uh, temple. It was kind of like the Lost Woods feel. So because of that, I could, I, covered the, I, I could uncover the whole map in each room. And they didn't know it was an intrude because I, you know, I could put in the beasts after they got in there. So they didn't know, okay, well, in that room is a giant dragon. So let's not go into that one. You know, they go through it. It didn't lead to just the next box room. It led to another one of the boxes. I had a map in my hand that, you know, you know, entrance A leads to exit A. And so if they went through on this part of the map, um, maybe like five boxes up is where they would come out. And so that way they could see the whole map, but they didn't know exactly where, what would teleport them where, and they'd had to remember, and they'd figure out as they went through the doors until they finally got to the end. Those are both really elegant solutions. I especially like the Wall of Force one, where like they have to go discover it. They can see the whole thing, but they actually don't have access to all the information. They have to go find the rest of the information. I certainly got a lot of good feedback about it, and I almost kind of want to do it again with different players to see if I get the same feedback. <laughs> it was I felt so good I finally did it right, because it was the same group of players I just kept doing it wrong with. <laughs> Now, there is a giant section in the GM book that Pathfinder made and published that talks about how, how to make a dungeon, and they have just charts upon charts upon charts upon charts, tables where you can roll on to help you create a dungeon. Everything just like, uh, what's this room for? Uh, where it is, the, what's the, where is it located in the world? Is it in a, you know, dilapidated building, a on fire building? Is it in a cave? Is it an abandoned, repurposed <laughs> temple? Is it this or that? What is special about this room? Like, there's one, one of the, I remember, like, if you roll a 99 or a 100, the quote was, it's alive. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the idea of a building that's perpetually on fire. 
<laughs> I, I've I've still held my back pocket the idea of uh, players do going through a dungeon and the dungeon is a mimic like a mansion or something on a countryside. One day I'll do it. Let's talk about something I think every GM is faced with immediately, and it may even be what draws you in to playing Pathfinder. You want to do this as a GM, and that's creating a world. Creating a world can be an overwhelming task and it can just like crush you beneath it like how do i i have to create a whole world for my players to be in and then you start just pouring like you just create a tome of history of this world reach deep history from ancient times to now to local how politics have been happening and all this stuff and you make the big problem not of coming up with that stuff but of front-loading your campaign with it of before we even play the first hour of the session is me explaining the whole world to you Listen, that will crush not only you, but your players. You will watch the light dim from their eyes quicker than if you shot them in the head. It is just <laughs> so quickly they will lose interest. It's like, especially if you just mention things that like, this doesn't matter or I will not come across this in forever. Here is how to do it. You expand the world as necessary, whatever naturally is called for. If your players are going to go to the capital city, time to explain the name of the capital city, where it is, why it's the capital. Okay, what's there? Maybe local um, politics. If you're taking place in farm country, 20, uh, you know, 200 miles away from capital city, no reason to talk about the capital city. You understand what I'm saying? And to note, you should still like have the history in such laid out and written beforehand because that's kind of something you can't make up on the fly. But only when it becomes pertinent to the players to know the information should it really be presented to them. Definitely. And something I've done in the past when I made my own worlds is, I know you've done this too, Caleb, is I made like a little wiki mm-hmm. kind of thing. And it had all all information that the players' characters would have access to. They don't need any kind of special knowledge to know this stuff. It was all in the wiki. So you can go look up other cities. You can go look up other cultures. You can go look it up if the player wanted to. Yep. But until they go to that place, I'm not actually going to tell them unless they ask. And that's the power. If you, and you, after a couple sessions, they are so interested, they want to read more about the world. That's up to them. You're not forcing them to do anything. Here, here let me give me an example. In my world, that's logged 380 hours of game time before Trailblazers. And this is the world that Trailblazers takes place in. I create a wiki, like Christian said, 306 pages on that wiki. All right. I need to explain to my players who are playing Trailblazers the world they're in. What do I do? How do I summarize 380 hours of world building in 306 pages? How, how do I do that? Let me give you an example of essentially what I told my players when we started Trailblazers. You live in a world of diverse species, race, and creatures. You live in the Empire, the largest nation on the planet. Originally founded by mostly humans and elves, it grew so vast that nearly every race can be found in its borders in one place or the other. During your lifetime, the Emperor, who was generally seen as a bad man, was overthrown by his son, Valerian and his new clockwork army, and he now holds the throne. He's married to a catfolk, a species that he freed from slavery when he came to power. Things are generally peaceful in the Empire, and they are winning the war with the orcs to the west. The Orcish Horde is the second largest nation on the planet. People see Valerian as a good ruler, with his biggest act being he saved hundreds of lives by sending clockworks to war instead of people. Anybody have any questions? I gave them just what they needed to know for, you know, it's the first session. They're about to learn a bunch of other stuff and, and go on as they explain it. And they were in a town, and as they kind of got out of the little immediate danger they were in, they learned a little bit about the town they were in. And then when they, you know, what their goal was, their goal is we need to get to the capital. And I'm not spoiling, this is just stuff that you'll find in episode one of Trailblazers. We need to get to the capital. Well, then they learned, where's the capital in relation to here? 
How big is it? How is it easy to get there? Caleb, is this is it are horses easily bought here? Is that an easy thing? I don't need to go through a whole thing before the campaign even starts. Now listen, the horse economy in this world is intriguing. Let me explain it to you. You see, fifty years ago, Akai came in with two hundred horses, and he decided. No, I didn't have to do that. It came when it came up. It came up. It, yes, there's someone selling horses. You know what I mean? You really, I can't, I can't overvalue this enough. Explain things as they need to be explained. And you'll find that if you do that, your players will end up asking you for more and more information because then they're going to get invested. You don't want to explain something to somebody before they want to know it, before they're interested. That's why I like, not, oh, sorry, go ahead. That's why I like the back of the book gives you the exciting parts of a book. It doesn't explain all the parts you need to know to, to understand the things it's talking about. You'll read that in the book if you're interested. A similar way of revealing the story in the background as the players play the game, a similar way of doing that with, with slightly different story structure is... I like to take the idea of sort of the Dark Souls type of storytelling. If no one's played Dark Souls, they just give you a quick bit of the history from the long past, like really, really long ago, like God's fought kind of stuff, and that's all they give you. And then now in the present day, most everything is a mystery. So the player is figuring stuff out as they play the game. They're piecing stuff together themselves. There's just things in this world that are remnants from that story long ago, but it's not like just told to them why this is. It's something you have to figure out as you talk to people and they serve certain things. And as you see new areas, you piece together why this is here and what its purpose is. It's when, a mystery to everyone, including the players. When Bioshock, the original came out and it told story through those like uh, those tapes, boy, the internet like was just exploding all over how cool it was. And every gaming review magazine and video and article that came out was talking about how elegant of a storytelling that was i could play the game and while playing the game get the story in an interesting way that wasn't just a bunch of exposition it was through dialogue and different cool events that i was hearing about while i was still progressing in the plot of the game killing things and shooting things and it was optional yes so if you were interested again if you're interested you can get as much out of that as you want to and that you know in other games where like like deus ex human revolution i love that game very very good game in that game if you want to get more about the world there's all these computer terminals you can hack and, and get emails and stuff and learn about the world and that's again a cool way to do it but you still have to sit there and read which is like i'm, I'm halting my progress that you want to do things that hopefully can help your players continue to play the game and that's the kind of the good part about pathfinder is you know they're having conversations there's no real way to like take them to take them out of it like okay you sit down on a computer terminal and we're going to stop playing for a second and i'm going to give you this piece of paper right you don't you don't do that <laughs> they're talking to somebody or doing something like that whatever you're doing you want to make sure that you know you still can continue take lessons from things like that that did so well and listen it might take forever for your players to finally learn about the ancient history of the world that's fine the fact that you have it you you'll be surprised at how valuable it'll be say game one session one you have the ancient history of your world and you don't get to it till like session 23 but all these things that have happened in the world or even in their sessions some of them were influenced by the ancient history when they finally do learn about the ancient history in episode 23 they'll be like oh that makes sense why x happened and, and y happened earlier in our other sessions or why that guy would have done that okay it makes sense now you have the benefit of having a connection that you made at the beginning and a reason for people to do things or for things to be the way in that world that makes sense and they don't your players won't be like oh what's this weird contrived reason for this you have a good reason now and so don't feel discouraged if they don't get this cool stuff that you came up with right away believe me for having it early it, you will be rewarded and your players will be rewarded now let's compare this to a 
pre-made campaigns such as a Paizo product. The world is already built for you. The world of Glorion exists. It has books upon books of information about different lands, different cultures, different histories, different, you know, parts of history. There's the long-ago Thessalonian Empire. There's the Dark Ages. It's its own history of the Glorion universe. And there is just this huge breadth of information that you may or may not need to know at some point while running this game. And it's both a good and a bad thing. Uh, one of the reasons it's a good thing is because if you're playing with, in different campaigns with different DMs, they're all within the same setting of Glorion, then they're already acquainted with a lot of the history, and you can use information for one campaign, and it'll work just as well in another campaign. You don't have to learn a new setting every time you play a game. It's always going to be in Glorion. The DM might have some certain additions to it, but it'll mostly be the same thing, which is good. This is also really good just because there's just such a huge breadth of information that, like, you can have multiple different games in the universe, and they can have completely different feels because you can be pulling from certain aspects of Glorion and not other aspects. You can be running it in completely different locations that do completely different things and have completely different cultures, and maybe the information from one won't even come up in another one. But where this is really a bad thing and something that I don't like about running pre-made sometimes is that the world is already decided for you. There might be some things that you didn't want to include or aren't like super happy about including or just simply don't know about and they're already in the game and you kind of just have to deal with that or ban it uh, just to give an example this wasn't something i had to ban but one of my players wanted to play the wangang race which are like these weird little puppet people and i know diddly squat about wangangs <laughs> and i didn't have the means of learning about them so like their race kind of never came into play i don't know where wangangs are from i don't know their culture i know absolutely nothing about wangangs so their race was just kind of like a template that was blank it was never used they were just like oh i'm this thing yep here i am whereas if you're running something in a you know your own thing that you made maybe you can make your own origin for the races you know more about their culture more about how they feel about other races and things like that whereas in glorion like i'm kind of already precluded to have i think dwarves and elves don't like each other i think that's still a you know tolkien put that for i think i'm not 100 percent sure i don't know but there's a lot of stuff that's already put into the world that you kind of can't take out. You just have to deal with it, and hopefully you're happy with it. You, know, you made me think of something. Another good reason that you don't just shove everything at your player's face, uh, and, it's, and this is true, it must be true of premates as well, is if you do want to change something later, you never committed. Say, say, uh, in the in the original way I made this world, the elves and the dwarves hate each other, right? But I and I tell my players that. Then later on, I'm like, oh man, this actually be cool if they liked each other because I need them to work together in this way and this way. That should be pretty cool. I like that better. Oh, but I already told my players that they they hate each other. All right, guys, well I got to retcon something. <laughs> and so if you don't give like that world out, I think in the pre-made either, because you know, of course, you are the GM, you can change things as you want to. Right. Uh, you can change without having to go back and say, oh, guys, retcon, retcon. To give an example, I made my own little homebrew world, and I picked like eight of the races from Pathfinder to include, and I made their own little blurbs about their past, and I have executive control. Those races are in the world. You know, here's their culture. Here's where they come from. I have executive control over all that. If anyone asks any question, if any situation comes up, I am 100% comfortable with saying how certain races feel about that. Whereas in, if I'm actually running a world in Galorion, I kind of have to use the preset terms of, you know, dwarves are stoic people from the mountains. 
Hi, I'm Caleb. And I'm Dom. And I'm David, and we're a part of the Trailblazers podcast. What is Trailblazers, you're asking yourself right now? Well, our podcast is difficult to describe. Yeah, it's kind of like a Senate meeting, except with less filibusters and more rolling for initiative. It's like going to the movies, except instead of watching professional actors create compelling storylines, you're listening to a bunch of guys just pretending to be professional actors. It's sort of like going skiing with your friends. If your friends are able to cast spells, wield swords, and there was no skiing involved. It's like going to court, but with less arguing and... Wait, no. There's probably about the same amount of arguing. It's like going to the bank, but instead of tellers behind the windows, it's just three guys role-playing. So if any of that sounds good to you, then you'll love our actual play podcast where we get together and play the Pathfinder role-playing game. We'd love to have you guys join us every Tuesday right here on the Trailblazer Network. Hope to see you there. So wait, it's just a couple of guys playing Dungeons and Dragons? No, 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 no. crazy? It's called Pathfinder. What, are you trying to get us sued? Let's talk about starting your campaign. I'll just tell you how I did it. When I first played, first time ever, I had a starter box of D&D. Not, it wasn't Pathfinder, I'm sorry guys. It was D&D, 4th edition, I think. And I got Ooh. the starter. <laughs> I'm going I'm to get fired, guys. I don't have the credentials anymore. I'm going to get a new <laughs> teacher. getting a new professor. Well, if the sickness gets its way with me, don't worry, guys. You'll get a new, you'll get a new professor anyway. But uh, so that book started out with... Kind of like uh, it said, you know, you guys are all have been hired by this guy to get this book that was stolen from him. And you're, you're like on a wagon, you're in his wagon, he's taking you to where you can get the the book. It started you off right in the battle. And he had a pre-made map for the dungeon and all stuff. And it's just like kind of started the players like, go, you're already playing, you're having fun already. And, you know, that's a, that's, that just like shows you the example of, People who are professionals, who are, they're they're playing, they're they're building that two people they knew. Listen, we are tr- people are thinking about playing the game. The person bought the starter edition. We need to convince them this game is fun right away. And that's like the first thing they did. And so that's the first thing I did with my players. And you know, a lot of GMs and even I many times, uh, you have trouble getting the party to start. You know, how are they together in the first place? And the GM book. Uh, had some really good things to say about this, and I want to just quote it to you because it was so good I couldn't put it in better words myself. They had four different ways of starting a campaign off. One is called the shared past. One of the easiest ways to deal with the first time characters meet is to make it their hundredth time. Working with players to create characters who know each other from the start alleviates much of the hassle of trying to entwine them with one another. Characters may be childhood friends, students of the same master, or relatives who have shared countless experiences before the adventure even begins. Working with the group to create a uniting factor makes explaining why the characters are in the same place at the same time straightforward. And this follows both with... I think this is something that's shared between both pre-made and homebrew campaigns. They both need a starting point in the players to either know each other or some reason to be together in the first place. The Shared Pass was used recently. My friend ran something. It was a pirate-themed game. It was a Paizo adventure module. And he said that it was totally cool that we had our own pirate ship beforehand and we were all our we were all a crew. We already knew each other and we came up with our own pass and our own reason for being on pirate ships. And when we got into the first se- session, even though our characters... We had never talked to each other in game. We all knew what to say. We all knew who each other was. And it was like, it was really interesting. And I think this is a, this is a fairly common uh, method of starting a, a, a group together. Then there's shared goal. Perhaps one character shows up at the entrance to a recently uncovered dungeon looking for a missing niece. And soon after, a robed figure also approaches the entrance, tracking down a kobold who stole his master's book of arcane research. Both need to clear out the same dungeon, so they might as well work together. 
It's the PC's objective, not their history, that brings them together in this case. I did this for one of my homebrew campaigns. It was in a desert. And I think this is one of the most common ways to do it. They were in a desert, and they were in a desert city, and basically it got raided, long story short. And they were some of the only fighting-capable people in the city, so they banded together to work together to repel the raiders. And I've actually had problems after that happened keeping the party together, because after that initial threat was gone, like, even in this example you give, like, they all go to the cave and someone's looking for a book and someone's looking for their niece once they all get their own respective goals done right. why do they stay together afterwards which is something i've struggled with sometimes which you know uh kind of going back to character types and conflict that's why i'm so particular in the players that i gm for i make sure the kind of people i'm playing with are the kind of people that are going to try to stay together not going right. to be looking for excuses to separate and like okay well i'm done thanks for helping me find my niece bye and then they're like oh great <laughs> now it's the gm's job to try to figure out i try to play with people who you know maybe have a little more sense than that right it should that should be something that's weighed more heavily on the player and not the gm the player should want to remain and although you should have motivation for their play a character to stay in there <laughs> the the player should be helping create that motivation Certainly. Trailblazer starts out with my players were all just magically forced to teleport to this place. And so they all just start out together. And then, you know, they'll, they'll soon get into battle. So it's not really in media res. It's definitely shared goal. And you'll see what in media res in just a second. We'll get to it. Uh, but that was like shared goal. We all were here together. We got to get out of here. Then we could try to figure out who each other is, whether or not we'd be, we need to be around near each other ever again. But we need to get out of this place. We're, we're in danger. In media res, a few things energize a new gaming group more than sitting down for their first adventure and immediately being told, Roll initiative. Novels rarely begin at the most boring part of the story, and neither should adventures. Starting the party in the midst of an ambush on their caravan, fighting a fire at their inn, imprisoned in a dungeon, or hearing screams from down the hall, begins the adventure immediately. The characters might already be aware of each other, but it's their reactions to the event facing them that initially draws them together, giving the GM a starting point from which to weave a lasting connection. This is the exact starting point of Rise of the Ruin Lords. I don't consider this a spoiler because it's like literally the first thing that happens. They're all in the city of Sandpoint and it gets attacked by goblins. It's immediately a roll for initiative. You're fighting goblins together and there's a bunch of citizens being killed and you're actually adventurers, so you're probably going to help them. And then you get to experience the wacky antics of goblins being horrible people and <laughs> the players work together to stop that. And that, that tends to form a lasting connection just because goblins are so weird and they all experience that weirdness together. And then they get that, like, you know, battle bond. Brothers in arms. Yeah. There's two brothers. <laughs> Flash forward. By far the easiest way to get the characters together is to skip past the introductions and straight to the adventure. Having the players decide upon how the characters met, develop a few connections or rivalries and, r rivalries, and determining what shared goals they already have allows a group to forego the introductory period. While this glosses over many nuances of character motivation and potentially memorable first meetings, it also means that the GM can start the adventure at the first encounter of the adventure and start the story moving forward from there. This method tends to work best for one-night adventures where specifics of characterization and motivation prove secondary to the excitement of the game. I've never done this. How have you done this? Christian, when we, when we did the campaign, um, The Harrowing, you sent out to everyone else, you know, uh, you know, you have taken this bounty, this this contract, and I just need to know from you, why did you do that? You already told us we did. You told all of our characters we already did. And we together had to figure out, well, then why did we? Why are we doing this? You've skipped past us deciding to get to this venture together, and you're just saying, you're on this venture together. Tell me why. 
Oh, I lied, and I did this, and I do this all the time, actually. I guess I misunderstood this one. <laughs> what did this you is think? actually one of the most this is one of the most common ones I I do then. Like I say, like you guys in order to get into this adventure, like you accepted some sort of contract or something like that, you give your character motivation as to why they did that, and then we'll proceed from there. Okay, I guess I misunderstood. Maybe I just wasn't listening. Maybe you're just really boring, Caleb. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I do this all the time. Kick a man when he's down, he's sick and I call him boring. Yeah, it's so that way you can't kick back. The best time to kick someone. <laughs> you know, not wrong. You're not wrong. Now, one way that's not in here that I've done before, which is really interesting, one of my DMs is going to start a new campaign, and he has to make up our characters, and we were all working on that. And we didn't really have a way for our characters to know each other. And another DM was like, hey, I'm going to run this one-shot, guys. And me and one of the other players in this new campaign were going to be in that one-shot. So I was like, hey, let's test out the characters we're making for the new campaign in this one shot just make them lower level and then that will give us background and how we know each other and that was one of the cooler things like the actual campaign ended up taking place like a year or three later and we saw each other we're like hey it's you remember that werewolf haha <laughs> yeah great times <laughs> all that wolf spain and stuff you almost died yeah i totally almost died it was so cool i love almost dying and listen like we were talking about uh having players understanding that hey you're gonna try to stay together try to connect a reason this really comes up when somebody dies in the party and you have to add a new character in when you do this you have to everyone and i I literally have said this to my players before we all need to be very flexible here this is probably going to be the weakest storytelling part of the entire venture we've had before or ever will have is trying to find you know a believable reason for him to join us so here's what we're going to do we're going to have i need a little bit of suspension of disbelief we're going to do our best to find motivation and good reason and stuff for him to join you and stuff but let's just work towards that and let's put aside a little bit of our uh, our disbelief here and then the players you know kind of work together for when i tell you earlier in my campaign i've had it where I've like, you know, thrown them together without that speech and had a reason for them to come across each other. And then, you know, they end up, you know, talking for, you know, 20 minutes and then walking by each other. And then like, you know, head in hand, uh, face palm. We got to get this party together. So it's good to, you know, everyone understands the game. And sometimes you just got to do these little gamifying things to continue. You ever have problems uh, putting in a new character after someone's died? In a homebrew campaign, typically no. That tends to be more of a problem in a pre-made campaign. In a homebrew campaign, like I said, you have executive decisions over everything. You make the world, so it's kind of easy for you to make a reason, a very believable and in-story canonical reason why a new player can join in. But sometimes in a pre-made campaign, like if they die during an awkward leg of the story where like they're in the middle of this dungeon that is unknown to the rest of the world and there's only one way in there and it's in another dimension and they're the only people with the key and they're inside the dungeon right now and you don't want the other player to sit there for the next two or three sessions while they're inside this interplanar dungeon how do you make a new character for them that could be a bit of a challenge there are ways around it there's a lot of creative stuff you could do but it it Sometimes the answer is, like, they will be a temporary character, something that's already inside this weird place that's hard to get to, and then they'll actually make a real character once they get out back to the real world. Spoiler alert for the end of Chapter 3 and the beginning of Chapter 4 Trailblazers. I, I was lucky that some of the best introductions of new player characters I have happened to be recorded, and that was in Trailblazers. When Thaddeus, who was Dom's character, died, I had a really easy way to introduce his new character. David's character, David... Um, was 
sort of imprisoned and he was working off a debt, right? He's indentured, as it were. And so Dom's new character was the people who he owed the debt to sent somebody to keep an eye on him. And so, hey, look, there was Dom's character. And then when that guy died... The, and in the beginning of chapter four, it took a little while. You know, unfortunately, Dom had to sit on the sidelines for a good 20 minutes of the fir- of that episode. But it, it brought up to when his character came in, it was like perfectly reasonable. This seemed like a good reason. A dragon came in and David was trying to negotiate to get the dragon's help. And the dragon said, all right, I'll give you my help, but you have to agree to something. I want you to train my son. And David's like, OK, I'll do it. And that son was... Dom's character. So now there was a it was a very believable you if you listen to it, it's a very natural way for it to happen. And my players, again, they still had the mindset of let's try to get the party together. David, I don't think there was any point in his mind where he said, I'll probably say no to this dragon. I'll find a way to say no. He was trying <laughs> to find a way to say yes, right? He was going in with that mindset. But it ended up working out very, very smoothly. So listen to that. I'm lucky enough to have that recorded when I think ended up being a, a really good way to, to add in a player. But let's talk about the path that you can take when you tell a story. We've started the campaign. You've got your world. You've got dungeons ready. But you need a story to get them through the world than into those dungeons. So what do you do? The core rule book actually tells you pretty cool these three awesome ways that you can kind of set up your story for your adventure. And the three ways are linear, unrestricted, and nonlinear. So linear is, as they give the example, is there's like five events, right? You know, the monster attacks a town, the witness gives directions to the monster's lair, you discover the monster's lair, you uh, the monsters ambush the adventurers, and then you defeat the monsters. Yay, very linear, this is the way it's going to happen. Your players go in and, and they play it. They don't have much choice to kind of do other things around that. Everything they do is kind of adjacent, but if they're moving the story down to the next part of the story, it's going to be through that kind of way. This is not a way I often do things. I like to give my players a lot of freedom. And uh, if you're doing like this, this is where like you have like the term side quest, where it's not part of the main story, where they go off and they're still stuck on like maybe stage two of that linear adventure. The witness gave the directions to Monster Lair. They're stuck there in the main story. Then they're like, but we need a new sword. So they go out to go get a sword. And now they've got like five different things that they've got to do for that linear adventure to get the sword. Then they come back to the main story. The witness gives directions to Monster Lair. Okay, so now we're going to go discover the Monster's Lair because we got a cool sword. I don't like that. That kills me inside. I like to let my players have a lot more freedom. That seems to be the difference between linear storytelling and... Um, railroading. I don't think linear, I don't think they're the same thing. A linear story, I think, is just things will logically proceed in a certain fashion. Like, once X event happens, you know, most likely they'll go follow it up with Y, because Y is the natural progression of thought from there. They're not necessarily being railroaded, just that's just kind of how the world works when they do some things, other things react, and then they have to go deal with that. As opposed to being railroaded where it's like, you can only do Y, it has to go X, and it has to go into Y, and nothing else you do matters. A lot of people mix up the pre-made books with, they, they think that they're going to be really railroady or really linear in fashion. And there's many of them that are not linear, though they fall under the other archetypes we'll be talking about after linear. But remember, linear doesn't necessarily mean railroaded. It just means that there is a logical procession to the story, and the players are most likely going to follow it, because it makes sense, not because they're forced to. I agree. I, I was making a wrong distinction. I was saying railroading. But I feel like it, it, it just feels too much like railroading to me. And I'm not saying it's wrong, and I, I apologize for giving that impression. It's just not the way I like to run it. So which of the next ones do you think you run it as? Yeah. I usually do the nonlinear adventure. The nonlinear adventure is 
almost more like a flow chart than just a line of things that will happen. Here's the book's example. Monster attacks town. You can either A, seek out weapons to battle the monster, or B, rebuild the town's defenses. Or C, you can go talk to the witness who'll give you directions to the monster's lair. And then all those connect to each other. If you did do the witness thing, then you can go seek out weapons to battle the monster. Or if you rebuild the town's defenses, then you can go ask the witness to see where the monster's lair is. That can all come across. And then it comes on to the next thing, which is all those will lead to the next choice. Are you going to go discover the monster's lair or you're going to wait the monster's return? Obviously, you rebuilt the town's defenses. You're going to be waiting for that monster return. If you suck out the weapon, you might be waiting for it to return or you might go try to discover the monster's lair. And then from there, or you know, do you ambush the monster or does, does the monster ambush us? Or And then you know, it all ends up leading to one thing, though. You are going to try to defeat the monster. But there's a million different ways to get to it. But you did kind of plan for each of those ways and you just kind of let your players pick the combination of how they were going to go about doing it. This is similar, you know, probably the sim- the most similar way to the way I play this game or, or GM this game, I should say. I like to let my players have a lot of freedom, but I still have a story to tell. And this is something I think I'll talk a lot more about in Jimmy Philosophies, our next episode. Like I said, these three episodes, these final three episodes of the 200 series are, are very combined uh, and they're meant to be taken together. I'm going to talk about peanut butter. I'm going to talk about jelly. I'm going to devote a whole episode to each, but let me talk about when we put them together, man. That That's what these episodes are. By the way, did you ever peanut butter and honey? When I was a kid, I'd love it. Now I'm like, I can't swallow it. I'm literally like, <laughs> trying to glue my throat closed. Yeah, I think maybe whoever was feeding you might have been trying to kill you, actually, Caleb. You were just, you had no, too much no, tenacity. No, no, my mother. I mean, it was my mother. Wait a second. I, yeah, I have to go, butter, I'll be right back. <laughs> peanut butter and honey and super glue and... And mom, tax, really? All right, I trust you. Um, He's just eating it. He's like a garbage disposal. <laughs> I can't do this. I, I, I do this to my players. It's a, it's a little bit looser than this. I don't have everything planned out and let them pick between them and all that stuff. But I have like, you know, I give them kind of a goal. You know, something happens at the beginning and, and there's a goal set up. And, and then they, they try to reach the goal in however way they want to. And I have a couple ideas of how they might want to go about doing it. But if they come up with their very own idea, I love to run with it and let them go through with that. And like, you know, through each session, I'm like planning out the next couple things that I think they're going to do and, and like different choices that they're going to have. Uh, I plan out like the next first couple things that will happen in those choices. And then, you know, just up to like what a session might be. And when that session's over, then I don't have to do any of the plan for the choice they didn't pick and throw that away. And then I can start planning for the choice they did make. And then the branching choices that could happen in the next session based off of that choice. So my players are still trying to get to the end goal that we kind of set up the defeat the monster to to have a plain one uh but the way they're going to go about doing it is up to them and they can go about whether it's seek out the weapon or rebuild the town's defenses when i run homebrew stuff my preferred story method is definitely non-linear and it almost like if you look at like the story options they have it's almost more like a spider web for the one i'm running i'm thinking of and it comes with the added difficulty of not giving them too many options because that is a problem in and of itself sometimes people want or need railroads because they just don't feel like making every single decision and sometimes there'll be just too many decisions and they can't decide on just one absolutely that is something uh overabundance of choice can be a problem and uh i've had many times players just stifled by too many options and i and i pre you know immaturely in my in my old time the past i get like upset like i don't understand you have all these options just do something what's your problem now i understand more and i'm more lenient like don't get mad at them they have a billion choices so 
you know, they got to pick something. You kind of try to help narrow it down. But you'll find that when the thing that's interesting them really catches them, they start they start off and running. And that's something I'll probably talk more about in storytelling tips, that when your players show you this is what I'm interested in, then start really investing in that part because that's what they've shown interest in and it's going to catch them. So once they, like, they're like, I don't know if I want to get a, a weapon to battle the monster, build a town's defenses, I mean, whatever. But then they come across a PC. And all of a sudden, one of the players is having like a love interest, one of the people in the town. All of a sudden, you know what? Uh, I want to build defenses in this town. Why is that, John? I just do? I think maybe we should do that instead. Oh, okay, well, wow, we didn't carry the way, so let's do it. Something will, like, bring that hook in. So just find what your players are passionate about, and, 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 and then naturally, that'll help them start making decisions. But I truly believe that this is one of the best ways to do it, and it's why I almost 100% do it this way. And um, and I look forward to talking more about this in our next episode. Let's move on now to uh, the, the the next way you can do it that positive. Let's talk about the unrestricted adventure. In, in an RPG, you might hear this being called an open world or a sandbox. This is players can do whatever they want. I might have a, a goal or something set in mind, but whatever, it's really completely up to them. I, I've made a world. You're in it. Live in it. What do you do? And then you just you end up kind of just creating events. And then just like if you're just let your players to deal with these events like, all right, I play this game. I'm just going to have the goblins attack at some point. The goblins are going to attack the town. It's going to happen. I don't have an overarching story. And maybe we'll figure one out. Maybe after they, you know, they decide to go to the goblins lair and they find out, uh, you know, while they're in there, I'm like, I'll decide there's a note in there and that they were hired by somebody bigger than them. Okay, sure. I've done that now. And now the players are, they decide we're going to go try to hunt this guy down. Or maybe it's like, we don't care. Well, we just got paid from the town to root out the goblins. Whatever. It's completely up to improvisation. It's a lot of, a lot of improv skills needed. And I don't think I have the improv chops to do unrestricted. It can definitely be a challenge to do a true unrestricted because it's impossible to come up with, I think, everything off the top of your head, like monster stats and things like that. And, like, interesting NPCs that they just go somewhere completely random that you weren't planning on. Like, you'll usually do what you said. You'll see what they latch on to and then grow that out from there. But right from the get-go, I think it's very difficult to do and it requires a lot of experience. Definitely. I don't think, and obviously no pre-made adventure can be truly unrestricted because there are events in the book that are going to happen one way or another. The closest they get is the Kingmaker campaign um, from Paizo. It is where the players actually build up their own kingdom, and that is actually very non-linear, almost completely unrestricted in how the players choose to build up their kingdom. You know, what they build in the kingdom, where they go, what enemies they seek out, what enemies they make, that's all up to chance and up to DM decision. So how does a pre-made, like, do that? Do they just give you a host of monsters to pick from? Yeah, they just give you, like, the, the if I recall correctly, I haven't run Kingmaker myself, but they're in this area, their kingdom is in this land, and they just they just throw you, like, these live over here, and there's, like, bear folk over here, and then this is over here, hmm. and, you know, if they end up getting too big, these people might end up going to attack them, but maybe not really. It's really your choice as to how the things around them react. They just kind of give you everything nearby, then how it will react to certain things that the players do, how they build up their kingdom, and the actions they take. And then there's just certain events that I think happen, like they will get attacked at some point, yada, yada, yada. Right, and we'll talk more about, you know, this kind of storytelling stuff in storytelling tips. Uh, we'll get a whole lot more into that and, uh, and and also in gemming philosophies. So let's move on to pregame prep. This is what am I going to do as a GM? You've heard a million times GMs put as much effort into the game as players do, if not more, because out of game, they have to do all this stuff. Uh, what do you have to do out of game for pre-mades and for homebrews? For homebrews, you have a host of things to do. You've got to design whatever encounters you think the players are going to uh, encounter. Mm-hmm. 
whatever dungeons they're going to get into, characters and NPCs they're going to see, meet, interact with, what is uh, the next part of the story of the grand story that you're weaving, stuff like that. You've got a lot of time that you've got to put in and, and prep work. Drawing maps is actually it's just, you know, getting stat blocks ready. And like me, what I, I had to do is like, because I'd have like a bunch of different monsters, I would scan and print out the pages of the monsters so I didn't have to have nine books open. Now with the wonders of the internet and the world of, of machines and computers, I for one welcome our machine overlords. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's a lot easier. Um, but it is, there's that kind of stuff is that you, it's the stuff you have to do for homebrew. You have to do many of those same things for pre-mades. You still have to draw out the maps. You still have to know everything. The biggest thing you have to do, you know, the time you're not spend actually creating those things because they're already made for you, you just have to read. You have to read everything, and you have to read it multiple times over. And I've talked about this before. People make the mistake of thinking, oh, everything's already made for me. It's going to be so easy. I can just look it up in the book. You, I have had to read... For instance, for Rise of the Ruin Lords, I think I've read that entire book like three or four times all the way through. Wow. And it's like a 400-page adventure path, and it's not like a normal-sized book. It's like a really big book. I've read that through multiple times, and I'm still unfamiliar with some things that I have to go over another time before we play the uh, session. Like, before they go into a session where they go into a certain dungeon, I will reread that entire dungeon. Because, like I said, it's really difficult when you're running something that isn't your own material. You know, when you created it, it's so easy for you to remember everything because it's your creation. It's right there in your head, and that's where it came from, as opposed to having to recall something that is not yours. You have to recall it from an outside source, and that is can be really difficult. I can't imagine. I felt like sitting down when I was like reading the core rule book the first time and doing that stuff. I can't imagine being like, I have to read this and do it over and over again because this has everything I need for this session. Like, that's crazy. When I ran the Harrowing and you were a player, this is only like a 30-page adventure. I had to have read this thing five or six times just to familiarize myself with all the characters and NPCs and locations and the story itself. And just so I was comfortable enough to change things around when needed, because I don't like being completely constrained by the books. I like adding a lot of my own stuff and changing a lot of the characters. So in order for me to get to the point where I can do that and be confident to change things on the fly, I had to read this so many times. And listen, you got it because... Especially if you know your players, this kind of player, we ask questions all the time. When we came across somebody, we were like, we were asking them all about the world because we were we were trying to learn all about it. And that stuff might not be on page number three where that encounter is. Y- if you've read the whole book over and over again, you can answer that question from the perspective of that character accurately. And that's a little something I didn't mention before and I kind of want to touch on now. What do people know about the world that they are in right now? This was actually a really big problem in Rise of the Ruin Lords. Um, the Ruin Lords are from the Thessalonian Empire, which is like long, long ago. And it's like ancient history and not everyone knows everything about it. And they're interacting with things from the Thessalonian Empire and they're going to ask questions about it, obviously. But what people actually know about this mysterious past, like what is actually common knowledge is not explicitly told to you. So I wasn't unsure. Like, they're like, oh, who's this statue of? And, like, I didn't know if anyone actually knew that Ruin Lord's name. I didn't know if they knew what that Ruin Lord did. I didn't know if they knew where that Ruin Lord's um, county was and what they ruled over and what they were known for. Wait, no, don't say his name. Uh! (laughs) Like, that's... I I don't know what people actually knew in the world, so I just kind of had to decide 
there then and there like okay um you know its name but nothing else about it why is cthulhu such like an interesting concept when when pathfinders bshare came out and had cthulhu and it had like old deep old ones and stuff like that i don't know why but i loved it our friends over at tales from the lich formerly softly speaking sanskrit love doing kind of like mind effing stuff stuff that would just crazy stuff that would mess with you something so intriguing about messing with your play your characters minds Everyone just loves a good Lovecraftian horror, I feel. Let me tell you something that, for me, is vital. It's absolutely vital, and I'm sure for literally hundreds of other GMs, it's irrelevant. But for me, it is the biggest part I can prepare for a, a session. And that's listen to music for inspiration. I will listen to music, and I've created whole encounters or plot points or stuff just because I've listened to music and then let my imagination run with that music. It's it's set it's set a soundtrack to different cool things to happening. And I want to give you an example. Right now, I want to play a song, and I want you to just think about, everybody at home, just sit there and think about what could be happening. What could be happening with this song? What would, why would the song would be playing? What could be happening? All right, let me play it. To me, the, the main thing I'm pulling out of it is it has a technological feel to it. Okay, okay, cool. Like, I, I feel like something technological would be happening. They'd be fighting, like, constructs or some sci-fi kind of thing. Cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. I got a little bit, funny enough, mine is involved with tech as well. When I was thinking about it and I was listening to it, 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 it sounded to me like the battle was just turning to the player's side. They had just done something amazing. When I was thinking about, like... Like a big battle's raging on, and like, and all of a sudden, a giant airship comes and looms into view and starts raining death from above on the enemies. And you know that music's playing and everything, and you're like, "Yay!" Cheery, excited. Meanwhile, like you can hear shouts from the cap. The party would at this point, I could just imagine the party just leaping up with joy over the fact that they've just pretty much just had victory over here. Something it seemed like they were about to lose. By the way, that little piece of music, if you're interested, was from Overwatch, Blizzard's new game. All right, let's play another song. Again, you think about what could be happening right now while this song is playing. definitely has an arabian knights kind of feel to it i imagine them getting chased by an entire phalanx of soldiers oh that's good i like that i like that my thought was a uh, kind of overview of an orc army like cutting down trees and stuff and fashioning weapons and rams for war that also works and some with music for me it's like usually when it's a song when like i hear something and it has like this feeling or this association with it that's so strong that i really want to use it in game that's when it really drives the uh inspiration 
for a lot of my games. If you guys listen to Trailblazers, you know that music important to me. I, I make sure to have a, every time you hear a piece of music in there, it's definitely there's a reason for it. And by the way, that song that we just played is from uh, World of Warcraft. Again, hey, two Blizzard things. Hey, hey, hey. That way, if I get sued, I only get sued by one guy. <laughs> but this is it's so important to me, and and I play it, and, and I just sit there like for that first song we played. If I if I want after listening to that, now I have to think about okay, so I want an airship. Uh, maybe I'll have my players find a, 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 like an abandoned broken airship, and they can go through adventures to try to fix it up and use it okay cool cool all right i've got it. i've already created some story hooks now and, and i just go with that and i really create so many stories just based on that it really is a, is a big help for me personally but i think everybody has their own muse their own thing that inspires them to create and find what that is tap into it and that'll really help you in your homebrew to create a homebrew uh, story and whatever part you need of it for your game. All right, guys, I know right now you're left with questions like, well, Caleb, how, how, how do I end a campaign? Uh, and there's and there's all these other things. And guess what, guys? In case you didn't figure out from before, we're going to answer it in the next two episodes. The next two episodes, again, are companion pieces. Listen to them and find out a little bit more. Uh, the next episode is Jimmy Philosophy, some personal philosophies Christian and I have. I have. Then we might have some good disagreements in that one because that's going to be very personal philosophies that I think GMs take very closely they play things very close to their chest in these things we're going to get them out in the open guys we're going to talk about whether or not we like to fudge rolls or not we're going to tell you out loud we're going to lift the veil hold up the gm screen and let you see behind it and guess what guys sometimes it just ain't pretty it just ain't pretty episode after that the last episode of our 200 series will be storytelling tips look forward to having andrew as our guest on that one guys thank you all so much for listening class is dismissed Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. For other great Pathfinder podcasts, visit our site, tblazer.net. Want to get in touch? You can email us at tblazernetwork at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at tblazernetwork. I've been Nicholas Laborde. Thanks for listening. Andrew, you want to play some D&D tonight? No, I, I can't. You're not real. None of this is real. Real, 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 real. Mental divergence can be a tricky situation, but we here at Tales from the Lich can be your hand in the infinite darkness. When you can't play, listen. TalesfromTheLich.com <laughs>